Our world is full of the unexplainable. And if history is an open book, all of these amazing tales are right there on display, just waiting for us to explore. Welcome to the Cabinet of Curiosities. Robert Burns put it best when he wrote, The best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. We prepare and we scheme, but inevitably it's not enough. We usually end up right back where we started. Guillaume Le Gentil knew about making plans. Born in 1725 in Normandy, France, Guillaume's original plan had been to join the clergy. Then he looked up to the stars. 100 years earlier, Galileo Galilei had done the same and observed the moon, the Milky Way, and much more. Through his own telescope, Guillaume managed to observe dwarf galaxies and constellations. His discoveries gained him a reputation in the scientific community, which helped earn him a spot on a special astronomical project. The goal? To measure the distance from the Earth to the Sun. It was commissioned by a Russian scientist named Mikhail Lomonosov and the French Academy of Sciences. Lomonosov figured out that by observing how Venus traveled between the Sun and a superior planet from different locations on Earth, it could be possible to measure the distance to the Sun. This phenomenon was known as the transit of Venus. 1761 would be the date of the next transit, and Guillaume was tasked with viewing it from India. He knew of a French-owned territory on the southeastern coast called Pondicherry that would be a perfect spot for watching the transit. Guillaume started out in Paris in March of 1760 and traveled across the Indian Ocean to the Isle de France four months later. He would have liked to have begun the second leg of his trip soon after, but the rest of the world had other plans. As he reached Isle de France, Britain and France started fighting in what would come to be known as the Seven Years' War. So it wouldn't be until February of 1761 that Guillaume found passage on a military ship headed toward the Indian coast. However, more complications presented themselves the closer he got to June 6th, the date when the transit to Venus would occur. For one, monsoon season was approaching. Strong winds set his ship adrift in the Indian Ocean for five weeks. And that's when the second obstacle came his way. By the time he finally reached India, he found out that the British had captured Pondicherry, preventing him from entering the town. Defeated, he stayed on the ship as he returned to the Isle de France. The transit passed above right on schedule, but Guillaume and his instruments couldn't track it properly due to the rocking of the waves. But he had another idea. The next transit would occur eight years later in June of 1769. Rather than try to complete his journey from scratch again, he decided to stay on the Isle, close to the viewing spot. This time, however, it was Manila that would provide the best viewing angle of the transit. He set out on May 1st of 1766 and stepped foot in Manila three months later. His welcome there was less than hospitable, though. Practically run out of town by the governor, he fled back to Pondicherry, which was once again under French control. He was greeted with a feast and the opportunity to choose the ideal spot from which to watch the transit. June was fast approaching. He set up making his makeshift observatory in the ruins of a building lost during the war. The governor joined him on the night before the transit, and the two gazed up at a star-filled sky. It was so clear they could see several of Jupiter's moons through the telescope. The transit wouldn't occur until the following day when the sun was up, so he bid the governor goodnight and went to sleep. Hours later, he awoke. Something was bothering him. The sun had yet to rise, but he could sense a problem with his plan. It wasn't the telescope which was working properly. Still, he had a feeling. 
Despite the years away from home he'd spent traveling for this one specific purpose, despite all the planning and the hardships that he had faced to witness Venus's migration across the sun, Guillaume Le Gentil never accounted for the one thing that could prevent it all. A cloudy day. A little bit of hope can go a long way. People in poverty often hope for a way out, an act of God to pluck them from their situation and drop them into a more comfortable life. No more hardships, no more wondering where their next meal is going to come from. Oscar Hartzell wanted to make sure his fellow Iowans never had to struggle to pay their rent or their bills ever again. In 1919, he'd learned about a large sum of money owned by the British government. It had been part of Sir Francis Drake's estate and had spent the last 300 years collecting interest, bringing the total value of the unclaimed money to around $100 billion. Hartzell had an idea. He knew he could sue the British government to release the funds if enough of Drake's heirs came forward to collect the inheritance. He put out a call to anyone in Iowa with the last name of Drake. In order to get the money owed to them, however, they had to invest their own with Hartzell, who would act on their behalf in the lawsuit. He welcomed investments of all sizes, promising massive returns. For every $1 invested, that person would get back another 500 He also promised the English city of Portsmouth as part of that package. Yeah, the entire city. Hope sprung eternal throughout Iowa, as farmers, families, and folks from all walks of life dug into their savings. It seemed everyone wanted a chance at a slice of that pie. Hartzell collected investments from tens of thousands of hardworking Iowans. When the money started to dry up, he broadened his scope and invited people from other states to invest, even folks whose last names weren't Drake. With a tidy sum under his belt, Hartzell felt that he had enough to take to the British government and claim what was due to his fellow Iowans. In 1924, he moved his whole operation to England, where he immediately got to work. Once he got there, though, he ran into some hurdles. For one, the British Home Office claimed that there had never been any estate belonging to Sir Francis Drake. But Hartzell knew the real story. The money had been placed in the name of one of Sir Francis's descendants, Drexel Drake, and Hartzell was well within his rights to claim it. The more he fought, the more it cost him. Before he'd left Iowa, Hartzell had tasked a few people there to act as his collection agents. Whenever he'd ask for more money to cover his legal costs, they would solicit previous investors who were only too happy to oblige. A month dragged on, and Hartzell was up to his eyeballs in legal proceedings and paperwork. At least, that's what he told everyone back home. Instead, he was living the life of a wealthy man off everyone else's hard-earned money. There had never been a government plot to keep the Drake estate from American hands, because there had never been any estate to begin with. The whole thing had been a con. In fact, it wasn't even Hartzell's con. In 1915, two men had approached him with the same scheme, asking him to invest $6,000, which they would turn into $6 million once Sir Francis Drake's funds were released. Hartzell saw through their game and declined, but the experience did give him a bright idea, which he spun to his own advantage. What's more, even after news of his fraud came to light, there were still people back in Iowa who continued to send him money. They refused to give up hope, even if it meant going bankrupt in the process. Hartzell was sent back to the United States in 1933, where he was tried and convicted of fraud. His $68,000 in legal fees covered by donations from his faithful investors. He continued to run his scam from prison for the next 10 years. 
Hartzell died there in jail, but with the help of his agents on the outside, he managed to collect hundreds of thousands of dollars, all of it from folks just looking for a happy ending to their story, no matter what the cost. I hope you've enjoyed today's guided tour of the Cabinet of Curiosities. Subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts or learn more about the show by visiting curiositiespodcast.com. This show was created by me, Aaron Mankey, in partnership with How Stuff Works. I make another award-winning show called Lore, which is a podcast, book series, and television show. And you can learn all about it over at theworldoflore.com. And until next time, stay curious. Thank you.